So let's let's kind of dive into things a little bit. I brought you on today to speak specifically about powerlifting programming. Um, I I follow you on Instagram, and you always have a lot of great content around um, kind of philosophy and principles around powerlifting. So that's kind of what I want to dive into a little bit today. Um, some of the questions I'll ask, that I'll be asking are be kind of be centered around some of the some of your more recent posts. But before we get into that. Um, I just want to kind of tell the audience a little bit more about you and feel free to jump in if I mess up, because this is all just based on things I found online. I feel like they probably should be fairly accurate, but if they're not, just let me know. So you, you, you have your, your coaching, I guess your own kind of coaching business. And then you also, you have like a powerlifting team called Hall Strength Systems. Is that correct? And then you're a gym owner of arctic strength and that's a kind of a, a more powerlifting based facility out of lethbridge alberta um, you're currently a, a 74 kilogram powerlifter and these are some of your your best lifts you have a 507 squat a 275 bench a 584 deadlift and what i really noticed about you that, that really was impressive to me was kind of looked up and with each kind of lift you're making steady steady progress and in many cases i look at a lot of other lifters especially a lot of elite level lifters and they kind of hit a plateau and they kind of state those numbers for a long long time so it's just awesome to see that you're like you're constantly improving and and bettering yourself in terms of progression wise um so is there anything else you want to add to kind of that or yeah, yeah, I think that was good. Um, those are my competition numbers. I haven't been on the platform in like a year, so I've squatted, benched, and deadlifted more in the gym. But, uh, you know, I, I compete in March coming up here, so that's my, my chance to kind of improve those numbers by even more and put some of those uh, – Put, put some of those numbers to shame because like the squat the squat is pretty dated like the 507 i've squatted uh 575 in the gym now so i'm, I'm hoping for 600 nice so. awesome yeah, yeah. I, to be honest i should have looked at the date of your last when was your last meet uh it was february of uh this year so it's been almost a year since i've been on the platform and that was very planned me and my coach talked after that meet like hey you need to like get some more muscle on your body you're kind of skinny um so mm -hmm. we took some time off i ate my way up from 167 168 ish pounds to about 188 pounds and then the last couple months i've been on the cut back down and i'm sitting around 172 now trying to work my way back down to that 168 ish mark to cut into the 74 kilo weight class for um, westerns in march nice let's let's talk about a little bit about that in terms of mm -hmm. what you kind of did to how you, how your training changed from more of a maybe a powerlifting focused program to more of like a, a program where you're not only working on strength but you're also adding in some more muscle building hypertrophy based training yeah um a lot of that revolved around the extra calories i had um for growing muscle we kind of wanted to really utilize that extra energy putting in my body to really put a lot of emphasis and um like focus on accessories so we so usually when i peak for meat so when i was coming out of that meet in february i was only training four days a week and i was doing very little accessory work um coming mm -hmm. out of that meet and increasing my calories we increased my workouts to six days a week um and we had 
for a lot of that period of time, two full days just focused around um, accessories, mostly upper body accessories. Um, so that was like a big part of it. It's just like way more accessory volume. We would still keep in some heavy work, um, like the barbell work never really got too far away from being more than like sets of um, five at most. We occasionally hit some like secondary days where we'd be around kind of the eight rep range for maybe like high bar squats um, for like the primary movements, but a lot of it was focused around like um, solid kind of like lots and lots of accessory volume um, through like tack squats and belt squats and lots of dumbbell bench and lots of machine chest press and lots of arm and shoulder and trap and just everything kind of stuff rotating for about six months there. Um, and just really trying to like emphasize training that stuff really hard. And it's not that I wasn't training my kind of like main compounds, my squat bench and deadlift really hard as well, but they kind of, I don't want to say took a back seat, but because I was training the accessories more hard or harder, um, I was more tired going into those compound movements. So I was always training those with a higher level of fatigue because they weren't the main focus. Um, so those would be kind of the two big things. It's just like tons and tons of accessory volume um, that I wouldn't usually do as a power lifter. And I say tons probably to most bodybuilders. They're like, bro, that's, that's not even that much. Like you, <laughs> you did like two sets of arms, like calm down. Um, but for, <laughs> for a power lifter, it was a lot of accessory volume kind of training, quote unquote, like a bodybuilder. And then just like well, you, you, lots of calories in my body to fuel it. So good. Well, you were, you were training, you were training six days a week. So that's like a big step up from the four days a week. Yeah. Right. And then I think everyone's volume needs are going to be different based on what they're trying to, to bring up. So let's say you already have very well developed biceps and triceps. You're probably not going to put, you're not going to allocate as much volume to those exercises. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's what it was. Like we had a decent amount of like volume, but you do so much squatting and deadlifting as a power lifter that like just you're going to have big legs if, if you have a decent squat and a decent deadlift. Um, but my upper, upper body really suffered. And I think that was a big part of like, when you look at my bench, it's not super impressive, um, at least compared to my other two lifts. Um, mm -hmm. But I dealt with a lot of injuries kind of back in, this would have been like 2018 through my, through kind of 2020 through my shoulders. Um, mm -hmm. We've done a decent job of managing those, but it still kind of comes down to whenever I'm pushing my bench super, super hard, I would tend to re-injure my shoulders and like um, deal with some pain around that. So the kind of thought and theory is like, if we pack a lot of muscle onto your upper body, hopefully you're a little more durable and you can push your bench training a little harder and make some progress there without just re-injuring it and knock on wood so far it seems to be working but uh we'll see i got a couple more pounds to get off so we'll see how my body feels a little mm. bit lighter do you think just from adding in more variability to your training with more accessory based exercises you've potentially decreased your risk of injury just through an increase in different movement patterns the way that you're stressing the tissues absolutely i think um a on kind of the more broad um, 
sense. I think I've maybe mentioned this in a post or two before. I think a lot of younger powerlifters hyper-specify too early in their powerlifting career where they're doing very high-frequency squat, bench, and deadlift, but especially bench. And they're not having a lot of variability through like incline bench and dumbbell work and just like flies and stuff like that. Um, And I think that is where people do get very like fragile and kind of at risk of injury. So I think that variability has been very helpful for me, especially kind of incline work. Um, The injury that I sustained was kind of like a upper pec injury. I say shoulder, but it's kind of shoulder related, but it's, Um, basically I was doing a board press. The person was holding the board wrong. I tried to rotate the bar so I wouldn't crush their thumbs. Oh, we have a cat. (laughs) Say hi. Um, so, um, I rotated with like 225 pounds and I just felt like tearing through my upper pec. And it seems like every time I work up really high on bench, that seems to like re-pull and re-aggravate. Um, so I think just adding a lot of like incline work, allowing me to kind of like target that area of my chest and build some more muscle on there has been super helpful. Mm -hmm. But I think that's exactly it. It's like the variability of movement, making me very durable in different ways has been a big part of it. And I think that's something that young lifters hyper specify too early and can really benefit from having more variability of movement. It's, I even see that with kind of more intermediate to advanced people just assume because they're becoming stronger that they need to do more specificity in terms of their lifts because they're trying to replicate maybe one of their favorite lifters on Instagram. And I've kind of, as a coach, I've, I've fallen into that trap as well, whereas I've, I've added in more SBD for my lifters and it just ends up beating them up too much and they can't recover. So what I find for just like my average genetically gifted individuals keeping in a lower frequency and kind of hammering those accessories um, out in in the off season is tends to be a, a, a better benefit for their longevity over the long term yeah i i agree 100 percent. sorry for the cat there they were supposed to be it's locked okay, in the okay. other room but they <laughs> they broke in we just uh we have some adopted kittens here hanging out so, <laughs> yeah, no, I would gotcha. agree 100%. And there's a there's a huge time and place for that specificity, especially going into a powerlifting meet. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. And I think the further away you are from a meet, the more kind of generalized you can be. And I think that was a big part of like us wanting to take time off after that last meet is that time off allowed us to be more generalized in my training and hit variability of movement to really build muscle and add that durability and uh hopefully lead to some good progress again we'll uh we'll see what the results are come come march but it's looking pretty good well well yeah based on what you're saying you've kind of already smoked your your prior meets lifts so obviously what you guys did had some productive outcome in terms of building your strength and i think a a lot of people think if they're not hammering their their comp lifts all the time they won't make progress but just based on kind of a lot of people i've worked with and yourself and many others like you can still get stronger while not necessarily being hyper specific with the the big three I should add that I was 188 pounds when I squatted that. So, <laughs> as a, as I like to say, you'll be 20. 
I was going to say, yeah, if, if I, I got to do it again, but 20 pounds lighter. Um, and I had a big old <laughs> belly to kind of bounce my quads against for, for that squat. So we'll, we'll see how, yeah. how it, uh, how it turns out when I'm lean and small and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I'm going to ask you also in terms of the accessory movements. Um, in my experience, like a lot of people, bodybuilders included, but in, in this case, we'll just talk about powerlifters. Um, when they do their accessory lifts, they think that the only way that they can, they can progress is by adding load. Um, in your experience, in your kind of specific instance, is that, was that your main focus of these lifts was adding weight? to see progression or are you incorporating other variables to see progressions? I think a little bit of both. I think the load was definitely like a, a factor in it. Like I was seeking to hit load PRs in different variation movements. Like I hit all time PRs for like incline bench and dumbbell incline bench and uh, dumbbell bench and just several different movements not one rep maxes but like rep prs like new all-time six rep prs and eight rep prs and 10 rep prs and stuff like that so load was definitely like a a big factor we were progressing but there was a lot of other things too um like adding tempos and adding pauses and there is a huge focus on contraction um and nice. like rep uh kind of Progression as well, like hitting, uh, for example, doing like AMRAPs and like, okay, um, the most I've ever done 100 pound dumbbells for on dumbbell bench press is 12 reps. So I'm going to shoot for 13 reps this time kind of thing. So there, AMRAPs and kind of rep progression was probably the second most common one. And then the third most common one for me was uh, variation um, progression of like adding in those pauses or those tempos or different stuff like that. Um, but anything we did for accessory work, there's always like a huge focus on contraction and stretch. So making sure that I was bringing the movement through a very full range of motion, um, whatever it be, trying to get it through the fullest range of motion. And then at the other, other end of the movement, trying to make sure that I am getting a good contraction in whatever muscle group I'm trying to build. No, that's a, a great point that you bring up. And I want to just talk to you a little bit about how like how bodybuilding and building muscle is different than maybe how you perform a power lift. So in terms of powerlifting, our goal is to move the, the weight in the most efficient way possible from point A to point B, whereas bodybuilding, we're trying to get the most kind of mechanical tension through that muscle. And that might mean that we're not be, we're not in the best uh, position mechanically. Um, so with your hypertrophy work, were you then, if let's say we're talking about the contraction and the mind-muscle connection, if you were not able to sustain that for some of your movements, would you then maybe pull the weight down just so you can maintain that kind of full range of motion, that mind-muscle connection, those sorts of things? I would, yeah. Um, I think it's a huge practice skill, and I feel like I'm I'm pretty good at doing it no matter what the load is. Um, but I think it's it comes down to like my coach and how I would define it for my athletes is technical breakdown versus and technical failure versus like absolute failure. So pushing a movement like all the way to failure, but you know, all of a sudden the last couple reps start getting a little higher and a little higher and a little higher. It's like 
no, if you're going to go to failure, this this is how Gavin has kind of explained it to me, is like, if you're going to go to failure, every rep better look exactly the same. As soon as those reps start looking not the same, that's your point to stop kind of thing. So that's how I always viewed it. And I, I think the longer I viewed it that way and the more I've done it that way, the closer those things have gotten where I'm able to reach absolute failure while maintaining my form all the way through. Um, but I think there's also like a huge mental aspect of like forcing yourself not to cheat. Like, yeah, maybe if I cut my reps a little bit short or didn't pause them or whatever, maybe I get two or three more reps. But if not doing those reps, I'm still reaching failure, but I'm holding myself to that like higher standard. So I treat basically all of my accessory movements like a bodybuilder in that way, because I want to build that muscle. The more muscle on my frame, the potential I have for strength as a power lifter. Um, so when I am doing those accessory movements, I'm very much treating it like a bodybuilder and very much like holding that really high standard so that I'm reaching technical failure, not cheating my technical failure to get a few more reps to absolute failure. Awesome. Good stuff, man. I want to kind of transition now into just talking about um, how you would, let's say you have someone new who's never lifted before, but they want to get into powerlifting. Um, what are some of the things that you're going to have them start doing from the get-go to kind of best set them up to be well-rounded powerlifters and have a career of longevity in the sport? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I think back in the day, new lifters wouldn't just jump into powerlifting. Like, I feel like it was like most people coming to the gym for the first time was doing some type of bodybuilding. Um, and now we see like newer lifters, like young lifters, they start lifting it from day one. They want to be a powerlifter, which very blessed to kind of be in uh, an era where that exists as a powerlifting coach and as a powerlifting gym owner. It's been like wild to see, um, just being in the industry and being lifting so long, how that was like never a thing. Most people didn't even know what powerlifting was until like four or five <laughs> years into their lifting career. Yeah. Well, and I think that kind of like stems to part of the issues. I think a lot of powerlifters are picking up programs that are hyper specialized um, to the squat bench of deadlift. So, I don't think that is the worst thing ever, but I do think that it means that you'll probably have to spend more time being generalized later down the road. Um, so my piece of advice would be if you can find a program um, that allows you to be more generalized, obviously you want a program that does have the squat, bench, and deadlift, so you are practicing the technique and learning how to do the movement. Um, my preference for newer lifters, it's kind of funny because it, it stems to be like the opposite of um, what I recommend for, I guess, almost like more intermediate advanced lifters where I tend to say like you want to keep some lower rep training in to keep that skill practice. But with newer trainers or with newer um, lifters, getting into powerlifting, I think there's huge merit to doing the squat, bench, and deadlift for sets of 10 or more with um, lower loads. Like, a lot of people, like, their first week, 
squatting is probably going to be with an empty bar. Like you, you probably should. Put, what, what, sorry. Probably should be with an empty bar. I mean, there's there's exceptions to that. Yes. Um, but you know, like if you're trying to learn the form and the technique and like make sure you're squatting low enough and hitting depth and stuff like that, um, it's gonna be really hard to do that, like skill progression wise, if you're also really worried about the load. So starting with a really, really light load, probably something you could honestly do for like 20 reps and you're doing it. I mean, that person has no context of what that weight might be, but just know that it should be very light. And then doing some mm -hmm. like sets of 10 where you're getting a lot of repetitions to practice. Like I know it's a big thing for people to kind of like want to jump people into like five by five or like three by five or like something that has a little more load to it. And I think there's some merit to that for people that are, have been lifting for a while, maybe in more of a bodybuilding sense, and they are transitioning over into powerlifting. But specifically with like a person that's day one in the gym and they want to start powerlifting, I think even though it sounds like bodybuilding, um, doing those higher repetitions and getting more skill practice and then progressing that basically until you can't progress it anymore and then dropping the reps a little bit, progressing that until you can't progress it anymore and then dropping the reps a little bit more, continuing that for about six to nine months until, you know, you've kind of ran out of places to drop other than to one rep and then continuing to progress one rep until you find a one rep max max is probably a pretty good idea. That uh, linear progression, we call it in, uh, in, I guess, sports science terms. Um, but basically just continuing to add load every week, but just starting very light and high rep progressing until you can't progress that kind of like 10 to 12 rep range anymore, dropping the reps to like maybe seven, eight, progressing that for a while, um, dropping the reps to five, progressing that for a while, dropping the reps to three, progressing that for a while. And then finally you reach a point where you drop the reps to one, you progress that for a while, you find a one rep max max. And then you have your one rep maxes and then you can start following a little more of a structured program. Um, and in that time when you're kind of running through that progress, I would do a lot of like generalized kind of quote unquote bodybuilding work, lots of accessories to, to build a lot of muscle. I think that's one of the most powerful things you can do as like a beginner level lifter is um, build as much muscle as you can and really take advantage of those newbie gains. Yeah. You, you see a lot of lifters that are like, they're, they're plateauing. And I think for a lot of them, it's like, and they're, they're being very hyper-specific with the, the big three, but they're, they're making very small progress from year to year. But it's like, man, like you just, you just kind of hit your genetic potential based on the current amount of muscle you have. Like muscle is what's going to move, move weight, right? Obviously there is a technical component, but you, you'll reach a point where there's diminishing returns on how much work you're putting in to get stronger from a technical aspect. I would agree 100%. I think that was kind of a big issue of mine a little bit earlier in my powerlifting career is uh, I put all of my energy and effort into my main movements. And then when it came to accessories, I would just sandbag them. And I refused to let myself gain weight. And I really kind of capped myself. And then um, more recently, I've learned I need more muscle in my body, hence the taking a year off of competition, gaining a lot of weight, trying to gain a lot of muscle in my body to kind of fuel that progress. So, but it's hard. It's, 
it's hard work. That's probably why a lot of people stray away from it. Is it, it takes a lot of dedication and effort. So, yeah, definitely the, the patience needs to be there. But I, th- I feel like people they might stay in that spot for a while, but eventually they'll get sick and tired of not progressing. So the the only option will be to take kind of that long road if they want to get better, right? And then yeah. the thing is, like for yourself, you've gained twenty pounds over the course of six ish months and like you're not you're not going to stay there forever you're, you're coming back down so you're going to be some people like to be smaller because they have better body composition and all those things but like it's again it's not a long-term thing it's like build and then come back down and maybe you'll do that again if it wasn't enough so yeah that's that's I, kind of the plan is to continue doing that until i have enough muscle in my body to be competitive so we'll the goal yeah. is world champion one day, so I might have a few more cycles left in me to get there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the reality is, just even for bodybuilding, like they people do bulks and cuts for, for a lot of people of just kind of middle of the road genetics. It might take them a decade to build enough muscle to be like competitive on a on a competitive on a <laughs> mic mic drop. <laughs> Sorry about that. So it's all good, man. It might take them a decade just to be to become competitive on a national level. So it's like it's just yeah. kind of part of the game. And I, and I think I've seen this on your some of your posts before um, on Instagram is like powerlifting and bodybuilding. They're very they're very similar. They're different, but they have a lot of kind of um, interconnectedness. If that's if that's a word, but and we'll, I, we'll pretend. I, I also like. To, We'll pretend. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. In- interconnectedness. Uh, well, it is now. Um, you may also made a post about how, like, a lot of people, they assume once they're getting into powerlifting, they have to immediately find out what their 1RM is, like, what they can max bench. But you made a post on how, like, how about you spend a couple weeks, like, just practicing, maybe doing the higher reps, and then slowly, gradually kind of bringing those reps down so that, like, you can you can, you can can uh, perform the, the, the lifts with proficiency, the risk of injury will be lower, and you're probably your – the actual number you'll get will be a better representation of your actual strength levels. Um, and that's kind of what – it sounded like you were talking about with the beginner body, uh, beginner powerlifter as well, kind of following a similar approach. Um, I, I probably they don't need to wait nine months or a year to kind of test out the one RM, but still, still taking two to three months to kind of build up to that, I think is going to be more positive than than benefit, uh, more positive than negatives. Fun. I think that's exactly it is like people want to jump into the gym on day one and go one rep max test. And usually that's how you see people get hurt or you see those kind of like very cringe internet videos. Like, what is this person doing? It's like you built up like no awareness of how to move your body before you loaded that weight. And I can see it from the way that you're moving that weight. If you've not built up the technical proficiency to actually be able to express your strength. And, you know, it's often guys trying to lift 405 or whatever, young kids. And it's like, <laughs> hey, that's kind of an impressive weight for how you're doing it. And, like, you are much stronger than that if you were actually to learn the technical proficiency to learn how to move your body and be more, like, proficient at lifting that weight. If you were to do that, then – you could lift a lot more than 405 because you're lifting 405 with 
you know, frankly, awful technique. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's a, it's a vicious cycle though. Cause like they go to a, a, a kid, maybe in high school, they go to a commercial gym. Um, when you look around at the, the strength levels of most people at the commercial gym, like a 405 deadlift is like quite impressive. So they, they hit that 405 with that horrible technique and then they get all these, these, uh, I guess positive confirmations from their friends, like, man, you're so strong. Like you're so impressive. And then they just feel like they have to continually hit that 405. They never improve their strength. Eventually they end up, they end up in snap city. Um, their powerlifting careers are done. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a vicious cycle. It's a very, very vicious cycle. Um, there's a lot of things we can talk about. I'm going to, I want to ask you a little bit about, you made a post about changing your technique and you made one point about managing your center mass better. Do you want to kind of go into that a little bit? Cause I think not many people would understand what that means. Yeah. So your center of mass or center of gravity or whatever you want to call it is like a fancy way of saying that the bar is staying over your width. So wherever the weight needs to be for you to, not to lose balance and essentially have to be in a place where your body wants to fall over and it has to overcorrect for that. So I'll use the squat because it's kind of the most easiest. I guess it's very similar for deadlift, but basically you want the bar to stay over your midfoot. When the bar is over your midfoot, it's able to move in a straight line up and down. If the bar, the bar always wants to return to that point. So if the bar strays in front of your midfoot, something in your body has to pull back to the midline. If it falls behind the midfoot, behind that center of mass, it has to be pulled back into it. And that causes kind of like inefficiencies of movement because something in your body is compensating to bring that bar back to that center point. And because it's, you know, like the easiest way to describe it is like, what's easier moving a free weight where the bar can go it, you know, back and forth or doing a leg press where the bar is on a track and it can only move on that track. As soon as that weight is on that track, it becomes easier to move. So in a way, even though the bar has the ability to go forward and back, we almost want to try to put it on an imaginary track as if it was a leg press or a hack squat. Obviously, easier said than done, but what we can do as lifters is we can refine our technique and our setup to get that bar centered over that midline and lift it in a way where the bar wants to stay more or less in that same midline to create kind of like an imaginary track for it so that we eliminate some of those inefficiencies that can lead to failure. Um, I did an Ed Cohn seminar years back and something he said really stuck out to me was most mislifts don't happen on strength. They happen on loss of positioning slash loss of technique. When somebody gets out of the positioning where they're strongest is where they fail. They have the strength to lift more weight, but they're not maintaining their technique in a way during the heavy loads that allows them to express that strength. So when I talk about keeping the bar over of your center of mass, that's what I'm speaking to is 
creating a way of lifting for you. And that can look very different between, you know, me lifting or you lifting um, just because our, our body proportions are different. But the goal is the same to keep that bar over that midline, that center of mass, to manage that center of mass so that we can keep pushing the weight up in a straight line and we don't have to waste energy because it's strayed from the midline to bring it back to the midline that leads to us failing at weights that we, in theory, would be strong enough to lift. No, that was, a, that was a, one of the best explanations I've heard about that. So thanks yeah. for sharing that with us. Um, Thank you. And then that's, <laughs> you'll see, like you'll, when, you're, when you're watching people lift, you'll, you'll see them raising on their heels or the, you'll see them kind of lifting off their heels or you'll see the, the positional changes to the torso as they're performing the back squat. Is that all kind of compensations to manage that center of mass? Exactly. So, for example, like if the heels start lifting up, that probably means the bar is really far in front of you because it's pulling those heels up and then it has to pull back, right? Or if you see the toes lifting up, the weight is probably shifting too far back, coming back down. So if the bar stays over that midfoot, it is pushing the entire foot into the floor and you're not going to see stuff like that. Now, there's other ways of compensating it that aren't the foot as well. Like sometimes you'll see people's hips shoot into weird positions because their center of mass isn't properly loaded um, and stuff like that. But um, there's some type of compensation occurring to bring that bar from outside of the midline back into the midline that is going to lead to a loss of power. Would you say that at like the... I guess the higher echelons of strength production or force production, when someone's really kind of near that top of the one RM, will there inherently be some of those kind of deviations just from the amount of load that they're using? I think you're more punished from like higher levels of deviation. Like when I think you look at like really high level lifters, please don't knock down my mic again. Bye kitty. <laughs> um, when you see really high-level lifters, I think inherently you see them do this really, really well. Because the higher the load becomes, the more you are punished for the bar leaving that center of, of mass, that center of gravity. So I do think it's one of those like higher-level things that separates like elite-level lifters from I guess not elite level lifters. I mean, like if you're squatting 600 pounds and you don't understand how to like manage your center of mass, you are really, really brute strong. And like, if you learn how to like manage that center of mass, you might be squatting like 600. I think some people that kind of, and maybe this is me overgeneralizing because this is kind of where I was stuck when I was really poor at this is um, a lot of people kind of get stuck in that intermediate range because they continue getting stronger, but more strength should be there. They're not able to express their strength at the highest level because let's say um, I'm able to do like basically what I can do for a one rep max for two or three reps. But as soon as I load anything heavier, I fail it and I can't do like a singular repetition there because that bar leaves that center of gravity. I think mm -hmm. the higher, like the closer the rep is to your true rep, one rep max, the more punished you are 
for allowing that weight to leave that center of mass because, you know, like trying to do a good morning with 600 pounds is just really, really hard. Like you got to be really, really strong if you're pulling that bar back from your center of mass in like a good morning and you're not able to kind of manage that weight and kind of stay underneath it. And I have seen some like Mm -hmm. really good lifters like get to that level. um, (laughs) This cat. I've seen some like really high level lifters like get to that level and have like a pretty decent level of success not being able to do that. But I've seen those same lifters learn about that and then all of a sudden have a lift like blow up. Like one lifter comes to mind, I won't name names, but he had like a phenomenal deadlift, like an elite level deadlift, but his squat was kind of lacking because he would kind of lose his positioning on his squat a lot. And then he got around some people that were a lot better at squatting and they kind of taught him how to manage his center of mass better. And then the strength we were seeing from his deadlift started like transitioning from his squat and his squat blew up to be closer to his deadlift really, really fast because he had all of that strength from deadlifting and he was managing it really well while he was deadlifting, but he wasn't when he was squatting. So there was this big discrepancy between his squat and his deadlift and then his um, mm-hmm. his squat caught up to his deadlift. And that's a very similar experience I kind of went through as well um, with my squat. Is like I had this like really big deadlift back in the day um, and was really good at managing my center of mass for my deadlift. But my squat, I was really, really poor at. It was a very inefficient squatter. And when I started working with my new coach, Gavin, uh, a couple of years back, and he started teaching me about managing center of mass, and those things started clicking, and I started kind of falling into a better position, um, my squat blew up. And now my squat deadlift are like neck and neck. I feel like that's very common, actually, to have that discrepancy between lifts. Um do you mind if we go into like maybe some potential strategies for someone who's struggling with a squat to improve their ability to manage that center of mass? Because when I think yeah. about it, it's like, number one, let's, let's start at the feet, make sure that the weight is balanced on the feet. But yeah. can you talk on some other important pieces? Yeah. So I think putting weight into your midfoot is a big one. I think how, I think the unrack is really important for this. Um, this is kind of a stance I've, I've taken as of more recently is kind of like, if your setup is crap, you're, can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. If your setup is crap, then um, by the time you start lifting, you're fucked. Like all, 90% of it comes down to your setup. When you are unracking that bar, Wedging yourself in, being patient, getting your back really, really tight, getting that bar into a place where it feels comfortable, getting your feet perfectly underneath it where the bar is in line with your midfoot, and then driving up. And you'll be able to tell really quick on the unrack if you're doing this correctly, because if you're too fo- if your feet are too far behind the bar and you push up into the bar, the bar is going to push forward into the if it's too, if your feet are too far in front of the bar, when you start pushing up, the bar is going to pull you backwards. So when you have your feet perfectly aligned under the bar and you drive straight up, and the bar goes straight up and it doesn't go forwards or backwards, so you have it in line with your midfoot. Now, you let it settle for a second. 
you take your three steps back. And when you're taking those three steps back, you are focused on keeping that bar perfectly aligned over your midfoot. You get stacked into your setup. You let the bar settle and then you squat and you just try to maintain that position the best you can all the way through. But you start creating that position before the bar is unwrapped. Like you don't unrack the bar and then try to find that position with, you know, 400 pounds on your back, right? This is so much (laughs) harder, right? Like you do it before the weight is even on your back. So it all kind of comes to your approach to unracking the bar. And the same thing could be said for bench press is like, you know, your arch is only going to be as good as the tightness you create before unracking the bar. Um, So those steps usually come prior to lifting the weight. They don't come like after you already have the weight in your hands or on your back. And deadlift is kind of easy in that regard because the weight starts on the floor and you grab it and then you pull yourself into position and then you pick it up. So I think that's why a lot of people excel at deadlift is because it's the easiest to manage your center of mass. Um, Mm -hmm. More or less, the bar kind of rolls into place to be in your center of mass, whether you like it or not. Um, So it's, the easiest to kind of create that really good position, but it's really hard to do that with squats and bench press and takes a lot of effort into creating a very good setup to make that happen. In terms of the deadlift, like a lot of people say this is their second rep always feels better than their first rep. Is that what you find as well with your athletes? Like it might be easier than the squats and the the bench press but there's people still do have issues as well because i like to sometimes i'll see that bar kind of translate forward and then they have to kind of pull it back in yeah i think yeah that that is probably one of the issues we do see in deadlift um which like i said i think it's less punishing than a bad setup on squats or bench press, but I do still think that improper setup can be punishing. Either not getting as tight tight as you need to be, not being in the same position. I think kind of once you lift up the deadlift for that first rep, for better or for worse, it pulls you into the right position. And then as soon as you put that rep down, you're in that like proper position and ready to do your second rep. Um, but I do think that that can kind of be minimized and ultimately eliminated by having a really good setup, lining the bar up with your midfoot before picking it up, getting your bar, your body into the proper position, going through the steps to kind of like pull yourself into that tight position. I think a lot of it comes down to practice too. Like I know I haven't had too many athletes um, struggle with this, but I do know a lot of coaches will program reset reps as kind of a programming tool to help people with this because they essentially never get a second rep. If they're doing a set of three, they put the bar down, they walk back, they walk back to the bar, they reset up, and it forces them to practice the the setup every single rep to perfect it. And I think, you know, practice makes perfect. So the more people are practicing that setup, the better off they're going to be. So that's a very popular programming tool for people that struggle with that. But I do think that is kind of, the same issue we were talking about with the squat bench and wallet might be less common. I think that's the same thing is like setup really makes or breaks the lift, even with deadlift. Well, that's definitely some great, great points there. Um, with the, I made, you made a post about the bench press, which I found was like very, very important. That's not really discussed often was about 
um, unracking in competition. So like, let's say that someone's training, they have their coach there, or they have a friend there that's always unracking for them. And then they go into competition and they just ask for an unrack from some, some random spotter that they've never worked with before. And if that unrack is off, that can dictate essentially whether or not they're going to make the lift or not. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this kind of plays into one of my neurotic habits, I guess. <laughs> I've, I've had many discussions with people that disagree with this online, and I, I get it. Um, and I think the argument against kind of what I was saying is that, you know, um, just ask a variety of different people in the gym to unrack for you and get a bunch of crappy unracks and be ready to handle it um, so you're ready for that competition. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But personally and for my athletes, I like to leave nothing to chance. I like to control as many of the variables as I can possibly control. And I think if you have the ability to set up in a way that allows you to unrack the bar yourself and not need a handoff from somebody i think that puts the most power and the most control in your hands to not like you know let's say you're in a very tight battle and it comes down to every kilo to to win and your third bench you get a really crappy handoff where the person just like yanks it out of your hands and you can't get back into a good <laughs> position and then you miss that lift and maybe maybe you wouldn't have got it anyways but maybe in this hypothetical, you would have got it had you gotten a better handoff. Or maybe you would have lost 2.5 kilos if you'd unracked it yourself, but you still would have got 2.5 kilos more. And maybe that's what you needed for the win, right? The less variables you can take out of your hand, like the more variables you can keep in your own control and take out of other people's control, the better. It's the same thing with like judging, like maybe squatting a little bit lower reduces how much weight you can squat but it eliminates any doubt from the judges so that's probably a good decision to make because you're removing that from other people's hands you're taking more autonomy into your own meat performance and i think taking a handoff takes some autonomy naturally out of your hands now there's certain lifters where they just they can't get it off the rack the way they set up the way they feel strongest benching they cannot get the bar off the rack without taking a handoff. And that's something you're offered in competition. So for those athletes, I instruct them that they need to be well-versed in describing exactly what they need in a handoff, because you get an entire minute to complete that lift. You should take that entire minute and use it to the best of your ability. So when you walk up to your handoff person, giving them clear instructions of what you want allows you to gain some of that autonomy back. Like, obviously, you can't control whether they actually do it, but if they have no idea what you want and what's going to allow you to succeed, the chances of them messing up the lift is much higher. So simply just by giving them some simple instructions of like, hey, I want a really light handoff, help me guide it out and then just get out of there. I just need a little bit of help off the top and then you can clear out or, um, you know, on I'll give you a count to three and then I need some help or, hey, I need a little more help. Get it. Whatever you need personally mm -hmm. to help you succeed, you should be ready to articulate that to whoever the head spotter and loader is in competition to do that. Now, that's obviously like a IPF CPU problem. You know, if you get into other federations, they allow you to just bring your own handoff person, in which case just bring your own coach. But it's a very <laughs> unique problem that um, 
lifters kind of within my circle, my sphere have to deal with being in the IPF, the CPU. Um, so I think it's a good skill to either learn how to do it yourself or learn how to articulate what you want from, from that person. Mm -hmm. Well, that's some really great advice. And I, I wonder if you were to like have, I guess, cause some people are just, they're not very good at describing what they want. So in training, if they just ask a random person, like kind of practice the, their descriptions and then if it works awesome like and if it doesn't like maybe try changing the way that ch changing the way that you're wording it or whatnot or communicating it with the, the handoff person and that's what i tell them too for the ones that believe me that that's actually a thing they need to do great um some sometimes they have to experience <laughs> it for themselves they're like oh man i wish i'd listened to you I'm like well it happens <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's how you learn right is through experience and that's not always positive experiences so yeah there's there's so much more we could talk about today but i think we covered a lot of great information for the listeners and for myself so i want to i want to thank you for coming on and speaking with me today um you're one of the kind of the earlier guests on the podcast so it's great thank you for you thinking we're willing to kind of no worries, Matt. I'll probably have you have you on again in the future. Um, so like I said, there's a lot more we could talk about. But before we wrap things up, can you share with the audience kind of where they can get in contact with you for coaching or if they have any questions, those sorts of things? Yeah. Um, feel free to just shoot me a DM on Instagram. That's probably where I'm the most active. My Instagram is Max Hall Fitness. Um, yeah, if you're ever in the Lethbridge area, swim, swing by Arctic and come say hi. Uh, let me know you're coming. Shoot me a DM. And yeah, if anybody's looking for coaching, um, feel free to hit me up. And if you just have any questions about powerlifting or powerlifting training, also, again, just feel free to hit me up. And I'm, I'm always happy to have chats with people. Awesome. Great stuff. Well, thanks again, Max. And I hope you have a great rest of your Sunday.